Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. Well, good afternoon and uh, welcome to Calvary Chapel South London. Uh, the title of our message today is The Fountain of Living Water Forsaken by Fools. And if you could turn in your Bible to Jeremiah chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 1 to 13. Jeremiah 2, verses 1 to 13. I'll pray and then we can get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. Lord, we thank you for another day of life. Father, we thank you for your word, which is a, a light and a lamp to our feet and our path. Lord, we pray that you would illumine, illuminate the, the, the understanding of our minds today. Uh, Lord, that you would help us to be humble as we sit under your word. Lord, that you'd help us to have ears to hear and a heart that would respond to your call. Father, please be glorified in all that we do, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would help me and enable me to, to speak and to be faithful in communicating your word today. And Lord, I look to you for strength. And uh, Lord, we pray that you would be truly glorified in all that takes place this afternoon. Please have your way amongst us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, in February 2011, televangelist, founder and senior pastor of Glory House London, Dr. Albert Odulele was charged with two counts of sexual assault, one involving a 14-year-old boy and another on a 21-year-old man. Although initially, he initially denied the charges, he later pleaded guilty and confessed that he had been battling with his sexuality for many years. He was subsequently sentenced at Woolwich Crown Court in London to eight and six months in prison to, to run concurrently he will be on the sex offenders register for five years. Now, when I read about this breaking of the marriage covenant by Dr. Ojulele, I was shocked and appalled. In our text today, there is a breaking of a marriage covenant that is actually even more shocking than this. First, let's get some context. So the kingdom of Israel is split in two because of the King Solomon, who turned away from God to worship the many gods of his many wives. Ten tribes have gone, went to the north. Two remained, Judah and Benjamin remained in the south. Israel in the north had been conquered by the Assyrians and taken into exile because of their idolatry. And now the focus turns to Judah. For the past 70 odd years, Judah had been behaving like a dog on heat, worshipping false gods, including Baal, the fertility god. Now ritualistic, ritualistic Baal worship basically looks a little like this. Adults would gather around the altar of Baal. Children would then be burned alive as a sacrificial offering to Baal. Amid horrific screams and the stench of charred human flesh, congregants, men and women alike, would engage in bisexual orgies. The ritual of convenience was intended to produce economic prosperity by prompting Baal to bring rain for the fertility of Mother Earth. King Josiah was a good king and he pointed people back to God's law. He's on the throne at this, at this time, at the writing of Jeremiah. And he tried to rid the nation of its idolatry. But deep down, God's people still loved their idols. Now Jeremiah was born into this spiritually dark time. And he lived in a town just outside the capital city of Jerusalem called Anathoth. This is one of four cities set aside particularly for um, the priests and, and their families. Anathoth. Now Jeremiah was naturally in line to be a priest. But then God steps in and calls him to be a prophet. We see that in um, chapter 1 verse 4. Now remember genuine Old Testament prophets. When they spoke and they said thus says the Lord. That came with the authority of God. They were literally speaking the very words of God. And they came with God's authority and God's power. So as a result of that people would either 
well, they were well, definitely well, well revered or loved, regard, depending on whether you know, the message was good or not, whether it was a message of judgment or blessing. So Jeremiah, like Moses, wasn't trying to be a prophet. In fact, he had excuses, just like Moses. I can't speak, he says. Furthermore, Lord, I'm too young. You see that in chapter 1, verse 6. Jeremiah was maybe 20 years old. He's called a youth, a young man. And he was being called to lay down his life with his own plans and to speak up for God in a time when nobody was speaking for God and to warn them about God's coming judgment. And the Lord wants Jeremiah to know that he was created for such a time as this. So in verse 5 he says, Before I formed you in the womb, I appointed you a prophet to the nations. We've got a picture of God's sovereignty here. Having called um, Jeremiah before he was even formed in the womb. The Lord tells Jeremiah that when he speaks, people are not going to like it. People are going to try and oppose him. But the Lord promises to protect him in chapter 1 verse 19. Now for us, there's a real danger today that we're going to read about Israel and think that somehow this doesn't really apply to us. But that would be a huge mistake. They were God's people and now we as the church are also the people of God. They had many idols and guess what? We too have many idols. What is idolatry? Julian Hardiman in his book Idols says... He determines it as, as this, putting anything else in the place that is rightfully God's and his alone, and then suffering the consequences. Well, ask yourself, who or what do you put before God? Have that in your mind as we go through these verses. We're not just looking at Israel and their sin as if it's separate and distinct from us, but actually we're thinking about our own hearts. So, you've got your Bibles open. Look with me, please, at verses 1 to 2a. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord. Here is the call of an Old Testament prophet. Jeremiah is being called, and God's word comes to him, which he now is going to declare. He's, he now is going to share. This is God speaking. That's the context. And I want you to imagine, if you can, Jeremiah preaching his very first sermon out on the streets in the heart of Jerusalem. Jerusalem that was the holy city of God where the temple of God was, and where the Lord alone was to be worshipped. Imagine the streets jam-packed with pe the people of God, known as his bride, and now the husband recalls how it used to be between, between them during their honeymoon period. He looks back. Verse 2b, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. The start of this relationship, we can see, was good. It was really good. Israel was devoted to her husband, and she showed that devotion, how? By following his lead. Now, the word for devotion is chesed in Hebrew, and this is a covenantal term indicating loyalty and um, faithfulness and loving commitment. Wayne Grudem um, breaks down covenant like this. He says, a covenant is an unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of their relationship. Man can only come into a relationship with God via covenant. God is the one who sets the terms of the covenant and then those, the, 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 the receiving party then keeps to those terms. So the heart of the covenant between God and man was God's promise in Jeremiah 31, 33, which was, I will be their God and they shall be my people. That was God's commitment. That was God's promise. And that's at the very heart of all covenant between man and God. I will be their God and they shall be my people. That was their commitment. This bride followed her husband through the desert. And who wouldn't want to follow this kind of husband? He rescues his bride from the clutches of evil. Think back to Egypt, Pharaoh. The bride was enslaved and he comes, here comes the husband and delivers her just as he prophesied that he would by the hands of Moses. He rescues her from the clutches of evil and then he leads her through the desert all the time protecting her from danger. Not only that, he supernaturally provides food and drink and clothing that doesn't wear out for 40 years. 
He is the perfect husband. He is forever faithful. All husbands in here today, let's take note. What is it? What does it look like to be a husband? God is the perfect husband. Notice that the Lord is doing what Israel have failed to do. And that is to remember. They have long since forgotten the goodness of the Lord. How about you? Do you remember what it's like to first come into relationship with Christ? To realise that your sins have been forgiven, that the burden has been lifted. Do you remember what it's what it was like for the first time to experience the peace of God? Do you remember what it was like finding out how much God loves you and how, how much he cares for you? And then beginning to understand the protection of God, how he, he has protected you all of your life and how he will continue to protect you. Do you remember what it was like loving to read his word, waking up in the morning and you couldn't wait to open the Bible and read it. You wanted to hear from God. Do you remember what that was like? Do you remember the goodness of God? That God is good. Look at what else the Lord remembers about his bride in verse 3. She was holy to the Lord. That is, she was set apart. She was separated just for him. She only had eyes for him. She was satisfied with him. Now we know that Israel was by no means the perfect wife. But the Lord wants to show the contrast between the faith of a past generation and the corruption of this generation. Israel was holy to the Lord. The first fruits of his harvest. And the first fruit of the harvest was to be dedicated to the Lord. And Israel were to be that, dedicated to him. They were his chosen and blessed people. The Lord also protected his wife. You see that in 3b. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Think about Egypt, as I mentioned earlier. The most powerful nation on earth at the time. It was an absolute miracle that God delivered them from the hands of Pharaoh. And then that he led them through, through the desert and through the wilderness and kept them safe. Got them to the Red Sea. And it looked like it was all over for them. And then he parts the Red Sea. They go through on dry land. An absolute divine miracle. All the while, Pharaoh and his soldiers are chasing. And then they end up as fish food at the bottom of the sea. Enemies of God's people, enemies of God. God protects his bride. Verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord. God's message, although specifically addressing Judah here, is for all who were, who were part of the covenant with him, which included any who may be taking refuge from the northern tribes. Remember we said that, that the northern tribes have been um, taken into captivity, scattered, taken into exile, but there would have been some who had escaped, some who were taking refuge here now in Judah. God is speaking to all who are part of this covenant. God has been a faithful husband. Look at verse 5. What wrong did your fathers find in me, that they went far from me and went after worthlessness? Note that word. And they became worthless. The answer, of course, to this question is no wrong was found in the Lord. No wrong was found in this husband. He had been the perfect husband. He had kept his side of the bargain. He had delivered Israel, just like he said he would. He'd led them through the wilderness, just like he said he would, and brought them to the promised land, just as he said he would. Israel broke covenant with God. They were unfaithful, and yet they treated him like he was unfaithful. The man-made gods that they had turned to when they turned away from the Lord were utterly useless. They couldn't actually do anything because they were dead. They were worthless. I imagine you jump out of a plane trusting in, holding onto, clinging to nothing. Then there's only one direction that you're going and that is down very fast. And you will understand the worthlessness of trusting in nothing when the nothing that you were trusting in leads you to destruction. You become like that which you worship. People who worship the true and living God are people who are being transformed more and more into Christ-likeness as they submit to the leading of the Holy Spirit 
in following Christ. As believers, we're being made more and more like Jesus, who we worship. And you sadly see the same thing happening with Elvis Presley fans and Michael Jackson fans and Rihanna and Jay-Z worshippers. They begin to look like and sound like their gods that they're worshipping. If I had a pound for every Elvis impersonator that I've seen, I'd be a rich man. There's a guy who lives in my area. Every, every time I see him, he's kitted out in the Elvis. Elvis has been dead for how, however long. Elvis was a mere man. He was a great singer, not a bad dancer, but he was just a, he's just a man. Not, not, he's, not, he's not a god. He's not, he's not somebody to be worshipped, and yet people do, don't they? Michael Jackson fans, there are people who have actually had plastic surgery to, to chop their face to, to look like Michael Jackson, their idol, their God. We become like that which we worship. I just want to read a little portion from the book that I mentioned earlier, Idols, by uh, Julian Hardiman. I would suggest you get this book. It's um, published by In- InterVarsity Press. Idols, God's Battle for Our Hearts. And I'll just read um, a couple of excerpts from it. He, he basically speaks about two kinds of idols. He says that there are surface idols and then there are deep idols. So he says that the surface idols are, for example, the husband that you don't have or the house that you want to live in or the celebrity that you'd love to be. And then the deeper idols are actually the goals that lie behind those surface idols. What is it you really want from them? What is it that you're really seeking to get? And he's done a, a, what is called a, an idol chart. And he lists some, of the, some potential surface idols and then their possible deep idols. And so I'll just go through these and have a listen to these and see maybe they resonate with your heart. So if your surface idol is a new car, your possible deep idol is reputation. If it's a first-class degree, success, reputation. Unbelievably neat garden. That's certainly not my idol. I have many. Uh, This is not one of them. Um, Control is a possible deep idol. If you've got an unbelievably neat garden. A boyfriend. Security and comfort. New clothes. Impressing others. Perfect attendance record at church. Idol of my religious performance. Exotic summer holidays, pleasure or reputation. Well-behaved children, this could be one of mine, definitely. Parenting success or reputation. A good meal on a table, a tidy house and a smiling wife. Well, your deep idol could be control, comfort. You need to be in control. An expensive new kitchen, comfort and reputation. Back to our text. Well, how did Israel end up going after worthlessness? They forgot the covenant faithfulness of the Lord who miraculously delivered them, who looked after them, who loved them. They stopped looking to him for guidance. Verse 6. They did not see, say, sorry, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt? Now, just pause there for a minute. Just, I often imagine the scene where God tells, tells Moses to raise his staff, the Red Sea parts, an absolute... I mean, what, what must it have been like to stand there and, and witness that? Knowing that you've been delivered, but you know that the, 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 the Pharaoh and his armies are after you, you get to the Red Sea, and then you see Moses lift the staff, and the Red Sea part. And then you and over a million others walk through on dry land, all the while looking to the right and to the left, and you can just see a sea, a wall of sea. That's how I imagine it to be. If you've seen it, I don't know if you've seen the film, the, 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 the Moses film. A miracle. And I, I imagine that as you're going through that, as they were going through, as they were walking through on dry land, surely, surely they're saying in their hearts, never, never, never again will I doubt this God. He is a God like no other. He is a God of miracles. He is a God who, can, who there is nothing that's impossible for him. And yet we know, don't we, we read the story and a little while down the road they were grumbling and complaining. Are we like that? Well, we are, sadly. We easily forget 
Verse 6, they did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through, where no man dwells. God provided for his bride by bringing them from nothing in slavery to a bountiful land. Verse 7, the land was lush and fertile, But rather than show gratitude, Israel followed after false gods and turned a blessing into an abomination. She committed spiritual adultery. Verse 7, and I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. See the heart of God here. The heart of this husband. I don't just want to deliver you and and take you to somewhere. I want to deliver you and I I want to... I want to move you on. I want to bless you. I want to love you. I want to share my love for you. I want to exalt you. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. How did they defile their land? Worshipping the false gods of the nations all around them that God warned them that they shouldn't do. They were affected by the world. What's worse is that the people who should have known better, the leaders, were not leading people to God, but they were leading people astray. The priests, like the fathers in verse 6, were not interested in consulting God. In fact, they were not even saved. They were preaching and teaching, but they were not in real relationship with God themselves. They were truly the blind leading the blind. This terrifies me. This is a terrifying thought that Men could stand behind a pulpit, that men could open God's word and claim to teach others about the God that they don't even know themselves. That's a scary thought, that we too can be going through the motions, we can be here, week in, week out, and actually we don't even know God. We've never surrendered to him, we've never submitted to him, we've never repented of our sin, truly. Verse 8a, the priest did not say, where is the law? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds is a recurring theme in Jeremiah and, and could refer to kings or religious leaders. Instead of being submitted to God, they rebelled against him. And were not feeding the people knowledge about God, either by their words or through their actions, as they should have been. 8b, the shepherds transgressed against me. They sinned against me. Those who should have been leading you to me, they, they are sinning against me. Those who should have been setting an example are actually no example to follow. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Remember earlier we mentioned worthlessness. Worthless, not profiting. All that is happening with God's people here, all that they're doing as they've turned away from God, it's worthless. It doesn't profit. Picture a a clock face with uh, hands pointed to number 12. And that's as as, as you look up to the number 12, you look to the 12. That's you looking to God in right relationship with God, following him, being obedient to him. If you move to the left or to the right, either way, it's down. You cannot forsake God and be blessed. You cannot forsake God and benefit. It's worthless. Jeremiah has the word of the Lord, while Judah's prophets are worthless and actually prophesy falsely, leaving the people with no real word from the one real God. The Bible speaks seriously about there being greater responsibility for those who teach, those who lead, those who in, in positions of authority, those who are responsible for teaching God's people about him, for leading people to him. There's a great responsibility and a great judgment that will come on those who take that lightly. It's a fearful thing to open God's word. It's a fearful thing to be in a position of responsibility. Verse 9 now, this is a courtroom scene and Judah's up in court with her husband God who is the plaintiff. That's the the one prosecuting. This is the the, the, next section here is the, the charge. God's bride has forsaken him. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord. 
and with your children's children, I will contend. The, the, the picture is, as I said, is a courtroom. And it's, a, it's as much as it, it's harsh, but it's, it's a pleading. We actually see the grace of God here. Matthew Henry says, before God punishes his people, he pleads with them. Such grace. They deserve judgment, but he's pleading with them. Reminding them of how things used to be. Just as this generation followed in the footsteps of their fathers, so too would the next generation follow this present one. Verses 10 to 12. Changing gods is unnatural. Verse 10. For cross to the coast of Cyprus and see or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. This would be the same as saying, look around all the world as far as the east is from the west. Look carefully. Go on a recce trip. Take out your, your, your notepad and pen. Do some careful investigation and see, verse 11, has a nation changed this gods even though they are no gods? The answer is absolutely not. No way. The surrounding nations, and as a matter of fact, wherever you go, the Lord says you'll find nations that worship gods. False gods, they're not real. But you won't find any nation anywhere that will abandon their fake gods. What about today? You think of Islamic nations that pray five times a day to a god that's not even there. Or of the millions of Hindu gods that millions of people cling to. They have no power to save you, forgive you or provide for you. And yet millions of people hold on to them prepared to die rather than change them. I was talking with a, a young Muslim man um, a couple of months back, trying to share the gospel with him. And uh, it, the conversation got to a point where it got a, a, a little bit heated. And um, he then began to passionately uh, say to me that he prays, and he will continue to pray, that Allah would strike him dead if he ever even thought about turning to Christianity, turning to Christ, turning away from his false God. He'd rather die. When we consider the truth that those who worship fake gods won't change them, but stay faithful to them, then the rest of this verse is tragic. 11b. But my people have changed their glory for that which does not prophet there it is again what is this glory that they've changed it is God himself and his covenant no other nation on earth was married to a husband like this she was married to the only real God and he was totally faithful to her and loved her like nobody else ever would or could she was the apple of his eye and he was all that was good about her all she had to do was trust him and love him. But instead she drew phlegm from deep in her throat, spat in his face and behaved like a prostitute. Back to the courtroom. Witnesses are called to testify. Now these witnesses have seen everything. They're always obedient to their creator. Who are they? They're the heavens. Verse 12, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. There's no man that God can call on to be a witness in this situation. They're all idolatrous. They've all gone astray. So he calls on his created order and says, be appalled at this. Can you see what's going on here? Isn't this disgusting? Judah's behaviour is absolutely shocking. They should, be shocked. they should be shocked and disgusted themselves, but they're not. In fact, they're deceived into thinking that they're fine. How deceptive sin is. She's committed spiritual adultery, but she confesses her faithfulness. You can find that in chapter 2, verse 23. As we move on, forsaking God is evil. Verse 13, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Turning away from God is the behavior of fools. It is insane. 
But much more than that, it's actually evil. Forsaking God is evil. God is the source of all good. How can you forsake him and expect to remain in anything that's good, to have anything that's good? He's the source of all good. All that is good comes from God. There is none good but one. Now when we think about evil, we think about people like Hitler and Stalin and the genocide in Rwanda and paedophiles and rapists and murderers and we can clearly see evil and we're shocked and rightly so. But are we shocked and appalled by what we see here in the text? And more importantly, are we shocked and appalled by the ways that we forsake God in our own hearts and worship idols? 1 John 2.16 says, For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. Our hearts are naturally drawn to worship. So therefore we must guard our hearts because out of them flow the issues of life. I want to read another little excerpt from Julian Hardiman's uh, book with regards to our hearts. And the headline is Idol Factories and Idol Altars. Idols are our biggest problem. We will never understand ourselves or God's grace to us unless we grasp how, how... how our hearts constantly create and worship idols. They are idol factories because they work round the clock making idols out of things that God has given us. They become altars where we offer those idols our best energies and our deepest devotion and our highest trust. Every single human being does this. We worship the gifts, not the giver. And in doing so, we destroy ourselves. Understanding this is the key to understanding who we are. Understanding God's response is of immense importance, a powerful, liberating and positive experience for us. As we understand idols and how they work, we find out a great deal about ourselves, why we get so angry about traffic jams, why, what drives us to work so hard that our marriage hits the rocks, what lies behind the compulsion to look at pornography, why you feel irrationally depressed when you fail to have a prayer time one day, why not being asked to lead your house group Bible study leaves you so resentful. Most important of all, we see that it seduces us away from drinking the living water of God's salvation. Our hearts. We make idols of things or people that are close to our hearts, don't we? Which is why we're in danger of making idols even of our children, if we have them. We can seek to find our worth and acceptance in being a good mum or a good dad, desperate for our children's love. All the while, not believing in God's love and acceptance for us in Christ. We can make idols even of our children. God refers to himself as the fountain of living waters. In Palestine, there were three sources of water. And one of them was fresh running water, like you get from a natural spring or a stream. This was called living water. Only a fool would forsake the fountain of living waters. Water is literally life-giving, isn't it? It's a fresh water stream gives life to all the, think of the plant life and the, the, the fish and the living creatures within it, but also anyone who comes and now drinks of that fresh living water gains life. We can't live without water and we can't live without God. He created us, he sustains us, and it's to him that all of us are going to have to give account when we die we only need to come to God and he will satisfy us he will nourish us spiritually and physically he will satisfy our thirst forever the woman of Samaria in John 4 came to the well with water pots where she met Jesus who said that if she came to him he would give her living water and she wouldn't need to go anywhere else to drink I heard a preacher say that She came to the well with water pots, but she went home with the well. And that's just it, isn't it? God will be a constant source of refreshment for us if we will drink from him. And we won't need to go elsewhere to be satisfied, to find contentment, to find love, to find acceptance. 
two boys found a mango tree in Jamaica growing wild and said, look, they got excited, they were Julie mangoes. If you've ever had a Julie mango, you know why they were excited because they're small and sweet and delicious. Um, I think Pastor Rob thinks that that's prob- probably the, 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 the tree. It wasn't a, a, an apple in the, in the Garden of Eden, but it was a mango tree and with Julie mangoes in it. And yeah, I, I don't know, the Lord knows. Um, but anyway, so the, here, here are these boys, they found, they found this tree and they said, look, let's, let's, one of them said, let's fill our pockets and, um, so we can get, fill our pockets with mangoes. And they start to do that. And then one of them says, actually, I've got a better idea. Let's go home, get some spades, come back, dig up the tree, and plant, our, plant this tree in our garden so that we can have mangoes every day. Now, I know we're English. It's not very politically correct, but you see the heart behind it. It's wisdom. You don't need to go anywhere else when you've got the fountain. So what was so wonderful that this bride would forsake the fountain of living waters for? Verse 13b, and they hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now cisterns were basically large pits carved out of limestone and then plastered to prevent rainwater from escaping. What would often happen is that the plaster would crack and the rainwater would escape, leaving nothing but sludge in the bottom and mosquito larvae. Picture the scene. A village basking in hot sunshine with a freshwater stream running through the centre of it, coming down from the mountain as the only source of water. The people of the village wake up each day and they need water to clean and irrigate the land, to wash with, and most importantly, to drink. So what do they do? They get dressed, they come out, open the door, come out of their home, and they walk past this glorious spring. And they turn their back on the spring and they walk away from the spring. And as they walk away from the spring, they walk towards some rocks and they begin to chip away at the rock, sweating in the midday sun. Day after day, they work hard to make lots of cisterns in the rocks, carving out pits and then lining them with plaster. It's hard work. Then they stand back and look at their handiwork and walk back home, past the fresh flowing stream, to wait for the rain. This is a ridiculous picture, isn't it? It's a bit like you waking up in the morning to walk past your bathroom, out of your front door, toothbrush in hand, and bend down to the sewer and begin brushing your teeth. It's a bit like me back in the day, even as a Christian, um, I used to gamble. And I used to go and bet on horses and, um, and the dog sometimes. And it was hard work going to do that because I would, couldn't just go to any, any bookie shop. I had to go to one where I thought people wouldn't notice me because I'm supposed to be a Christian. And um, it was hard work just finding a shop. And it was, I was always nervous that somebody may, might come in and see me. I'd obviously have to lie about where I was. I'd often been there much longer than I should have been. Often, nine times out of ten, if not always, I'd lose. Um, and I ended up losing a lot of money. And I nearly ended up losing my marriage um, through this gambling. It was a, a broken system. It didn't make sense. And I, I'd, I'd often take money that, that the Lord had given me um, and go and spend that money to try and make more money. There, there I was with the fountain. I've got the fountain. I'm, I'm in relationship with God. He's providing for me. I'm, he's provided a job for me so that I can work. He's been good to me as he said he would be. But somehow that wasn't enough for me. So I was turning my back on him and going to the cistern called Ladbrokes and William Hill and Coral. And it was empty. I was empty. It was foolish. I was foolish. And it didn't satisfy me. Idols lie to you, don't they? They promise fulfillment. They say... When you get married, then you'll be complete and fulfilled. If you can just have one more pair of shoes, you'll feel confident when you go out. If you get away from here to new surroundings, a new church, new wife, new whatever, then you'll be happy. Judah had forsaken the very source of their life and fruitfulness. 
they turned their back on God and created their own gods and dug out their own cisterns. And what did they now have to show for it? Like me in the, coming out of a bookie shop at the end of the day, nothing. No water. The thing that was promised, the thing that I was going after, the thing that they were going after, whatever it is, is empty. There's no life. Just emptiness. Oh yes, and judgment. Because thinking about Judah here, Babylon are coming and they are going to sack Jerusalem. They're going to destroy the temple and they're going to take God's people into captivity. God has been warning them over and over and over and over and over again. Just in the same way that he warns us over and over and over again because he loves us. Because he loves them, he warned them. He's a gracious and loving and patient and kind husband. Well, we've heard the evidence against God's people, his bride, and it's shocking. And I'm sure we'll all agree that she is guilty as charged and deserves to be divorced. She deserves to be forsaken. But this husband is like no other. This God is the God of abundant mercy and grace. Over a hundred times in the book of Jeremiah alone, the God, God mercifully cries out, repent, turn away from your idols and turn towards me and I will forgive you. It is outstanding. Look with me at um, chapter 3 verses 14 to 15 quickly. And it says... Return, this is God speaking to Judah. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord. For I am your master, or I am your husband. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion, Jerusalem, the holy city. And I will give you shepherds after my own heart, who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. Unlike the shepherds who have not been feeding with knowledge and understanding and in many ways have led to the situation that Judah are in now. All responsible for their sin, particularly the leaders. The shepherds who were not real shepherds. They weren't like David, a faithful shepherd, who, a faithful king on the throne who was a good shepherd of God's people. And who was a shadow of the good shepherd, Jesus the ultimate shepherd who is yet to come. Right at the heart of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is God's unfailing covenant love towards his people. His judgment comes so that people will turn from their sin and turn towards him so that he can forgive them. That's his heart. The ultimate example of this salvation through judgment was shown where? On the cross. Where God the Father poured out his judgment for the sin of mankind. Not on mankind, but on his son, Jesus. So that all who trust in him will be saved. This is extravagant mercy and grace. If you know that you've spent your life forsaking God. And you've never turned away from your sin. But you you want to be forgiven. Well, there's great news for you. Jesus said in John 4.14, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus Christ is the only way to eternal life. His is the only name by which men must be saved. He is the only acceptable sacrifice for your sin. The judgment of God was poured out on Jesus on the cross and then he rose again three days after that, proving that he was an acceptable sacrifice. And he sits now at the right hand of God the Father who, and, he, and he prays for all who repent and believe in him as their saviour. He becomes your high priest. He intercedes on your behalf. He has paid for your sin, if you will put your faith and your trust in him, then you will be forgiven. 
That is glorious news, particularly in light of the, the if you think about the darkness that we've been looking at in, in this text, and the, the, the tone is very much one of, of, of judgment is coming, and God's people have, have, have abandoned him. And it doesn't make sense that he would actually be so merciful. It's almost too good to be true. If you're a believer here today, there's fresh opportunity for you to to return to the fountain. You can cry out to God in repentance and trust in his grace. God has created every human being to worship. And that's exactly what we do. The only question is who or what do we worship? For some here today, maybe you, you feel like you're still in that honeymoon period. You're a, you're a new believer or you've been a believer for some time, but you, you're just back remembering the goodness of God. And that's where you're at at the moment. And you're in a wonderful place in your relationship with the Lord. You're remembering his goodness. You're reminding yourself. You're reading his word. You're, you're praying. You're seeking him. You're not abandoning him. And to you, I say, pray that you don't become complacent. Rejoice that you are where you're at, but pray you don't become complacent. And also pray and ask the Lord to reveal to you if and when and where and how and what idols may be hiding in your heart. Remember the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? Some come to church every week, but you've actually forsaken God. In that you've made cisterns for yourself that won't hold water. You're much more excited at the thought of socialising at church on a Sunday. Or watching your favourite TV programme. Or having sex outside of marriage. Or watching porn. These things excite you more than spending time with God. Or making money. Making paper as they say nowadays. You're, you're, you, 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 you worship at the altar of money. I mean, you'd never really admit that, but actually that's, that's what, where your heart's intention is. You're, you're, you're constantly thinking about more money, moving up the career ladder so that you can have more. Or maybe your, your focus is being fit and healthy. It's a massive idol of today, isn't it? Going to the gym and pampering yourself. All of these, most of these in so many ways are good things. Good gifts that God's given us, but gifts that we often abuse and we forsake God and we now focus on the things that he's, the blessings that he's, he's given us. We focus on those things and, and make an idol from them. Maybe it's living in a nice home. Whatever it is for you, all you could ever hope for lies in Christ, the fountain of living water. And your relationship with him, in him there's forgiveness. You can come boldly to the throne of grace. The veil has been torn. You can come to the Father and be forgiven. You can come to the fountain and be refreshed and be revived. Apart from the grace of God, you can't stop worshipping dumb, worthless idols. But we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Come to the fountain of living waters and receive forgiveness and restoration. In Jesus' name. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And Lord, we are humbled by it. We're challenged by it, Lord. We're convicted by it. As we read about Old Testament believers, Lord, who struggled in the same way that we struggle, Lord, who turned their back on you, who forsook you and went after other gods. Lord, we're we're warned, Lord, that you will and you must judge and punish sin in order for you to be a righteous God. You must. But Lord, we've seen your grace at work, even in the life of these Old Testament believers, Lord. We see that you're a gracious and merciful God. 
But Lord, I pray that for any in here today, Lord, any hearing the sound of my voice, Lord, who have forsaken you, Lord, and they're unaware of it. Or they're in denial, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes, Lord, and help them to see their desperate need to return to you, to come back, to run to the living waters and be refreshed and forgiven again. And Lord, I pray from my own heart, Lord, that you would continue to reveal to me, Lord, where my heart wanders. The idols in in my heart, Lord, the idols in my life, Lord, I, I repent of my sin, Lord, and ask that you would forgive me. Lord, I thank you that you're gracious. I thank you that you're merciful. Lord, I pray that you would return to us the the joy of our salvation. Lord, remind us of the joy of our salvation. Remind us of our first love. Lord, that we would seek to just bask in our relationship with you, Lord. We love you, not just in words, but in actions. That we would come to the fountain of living waters and not be foolish. In Jesus' name, amen.